What up, family? This is a sermon from the downtown congregation of Park Church. May it bless your soul as you dig deeper into God's Word. More resources and info are online at parkchurch.org. Good morning, Park Church. If you would go ahead and take your seats, we'll go ahead and get started. Um, So a couple of weeks ago, I posted on um, social media a picture of my grandfather's Bible that is written in Armenian and um, was asked if I would share uh, or read this passage um, for today in Armenian. Um, The reason I love doing this is because I think sometimes it's really easy to get into a bubble, to think that God is a God of just Western civilizations, of English-speaking peoples, and um, he's not. He's a global God who is for all people from all places, um, from all languages. And so um, I'll go ahead and read part of our scripture in Armenian, and then we'll read the whole passage in English. Um, So our passage today is from Matthew chapter 13 verses 1 through 23, um, and I'll read the first uh, nine verses in Armenian, so I challenge you to follow along with me if you can. Ein ora Jesus dunen ye lalov, zobun ye zerke nestav, yevshad jorovutner kova jorvetan, ein besvor ink nava madav, unestav, yevpolor jorovurte zove zerke gainerer, ushad paner josetav anons, Aragnerov, Yevesav. Aha, Serm Tanore, ye love, vor Serm Tane. Uyerbgetaner, Mekani nere jampun kov ingan. Uterchunere yegan ugeran zanunk. Yev Urishner, Aragajud, Aregneru, vera ingan. Urshad horchigar. Yev Shudma, Polor, Horun, Horungutun, Chunenalun hamar. Sagain arevun zakats adena, are airetan. Warmad chorutuna hamar chortan. Yev urishnere ingan pusheru mech, yev pushere yelan hechtetin zanong. U urishner ingan areg hori mech, u bedur gudain, vor megas meg hairur, vor avatsun, yev vore yeresun, an vor leselu aganchuni torlese. And uh, now I'll read it in English. The same day Jesus went out of the house and sat sat beside the sea, and great crowds gathered about him. So he got into a boat and sat down, and the whole crowd stood on the beach. And he told them many things in parables, saying, A sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground, where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up, since they had no depth of soil." But when the sun rose, they were scorched, and since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. Then the disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered them, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in the case, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, 
You will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed. Lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see, and did not see it, and to hear what you hear, and did not hear it. Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what has been sown along the path. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while, and when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. As for what was sown among the thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. As for the one who is sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields, in one case a hundredfold, in another sixty, and in another thirty. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Talene. Can we thank Talene for reading? Really appreciate that. Thank you so much. Uh, my name is Gary. I'm one of the pastors here at Park Church. Um, if I haven't met you, it might be because I do a lot of the preaching and teaching in our other congregation up in the Highlands. Pastor Matt and Pastor Miguel are out this weekend, so I get the privilege of being with you all. And it really is a privilege uh, just to see so many faces and, and be here worshiping and seeing you all as a gift. And so thank you. Um, does it feel a little boomy? Was it a little boomy? Um, that was boomy. <laughs> that was a prophetic word. That was a, feels boomy, boom. Um, so uh, it's a big day culturally, whether you call it Reformation Day or Harvest Day or Halloween, whatever you do. Uh, it's a big day culturally. My kids, if you ask them what today is all about, they have learned through the liturgies of our home and healthy discipleship that today is the day that little kids get dressed up to get candy for their daddies. Um, <laughs> And uh, so maybe you do the candy tax thing. You can do it. You can do flat rate, 10%. You can pick a particular kind of candy, and like all of these come straight to me. Uh, Whatever it is, uh, it's a great chance to get to know your neighbors, love people, serve people, or maybe just shut your lights out, close your blinds, and watch a movie, no judgment. I get it. Uh, But it's a day that we just want to pay attention to culturally uh, as we try to be salt and light in the midst of a world that is full of competing ideas about where the good life comes from. And so uh, this morning, what we're looking at is a passage Uh, where Jesus is going to teach us about the nature of his kingdom through these cryptic little stories. Uh, A lot of debates throughout church history about what he's doing, why he uses parables, why they work. But Matthew 13 is largely a kind of collection of parables or these short fictional stories about the nature of the kingdom of God. And uh, and at the kind of end of this first parable, Jesus has this line, and I just want to draw attention to it for a moment before we dive in. I look with me at Matthew 13, verse 9 says, he who has ears, let him hear. Or let the one who has ears hear. Uh, and it's a kind of idiomatic way of saying, if your heart is receptive, then receive this word. And I think it's just an interesting line, because in a moment like this, it's really complicated. We're going to actually learn some of the competing things that make it hard for us to receive the teachings of Jesus about who he is and what his kingdom's like. 
And so a moment like this, we have to pay attention that there are things that are happening in the world, there are things that are happening within our own heart and situationally that make it hard for us to be receptive to the teachings of Jesus. And so a question I want to ask to you with no kind of condescension or judgment is, do you have ears to hear? Or at least do you want to? Do you want to be receptive to the teachings of Jesus and the nature of his kingdom? And if you do, it actually takes effort and work to open up your heart, to pay attention, to kind of weed through the distractions and open up your heart to what the Spirit of God might want to say to you. And to do that, we need the Spirit of God to help us. And so I want to pray for a moment that the Spirit would give us ears to hear, eyes to see, and hearts that would receive and obey the words of Jesus. So would you join me as we pray? Jesus, we um, pause right now to acknowledge our dependence on you. We are weak people with distracted hearts. Uh, There are areas where our our souls and our hearts are opposed, and, and there are things within us that are pressing against your teaching. There are things in the spiritual realm that want to distract or divide or take away the things that you want to speak into humanity and speak into our lives individually. There are pressures and pains in this world that make it hard to be receptive. And so we pray that your spirit would right now open up our hearts to be receptive to your word. And spirit, would you soften our hearts? Would you tune our hearts to hear your word and to sing your praise? And we want to thank you for your faithfulness uh, to your people throughout the ages, even in this parable, just seeing your faithfulness in times that feel dark and times that feel confusing and times where we feel uh, opposition and conflict all around us and chaos and culture and competing desires within our own heart. You have always been faithful to build your church, to establish your kingdom, and you will be faithful to the end. And so I want to say thank you for your faithfulness to us. Thank you for your grace and thanks for your presence with us this morning. Would you speak to us with power in Christ's name? Amen. Uh, We are living right now in the midst of a massive cultural shift. The sort of tectonic plates in culture are are shifting and you feel it uh, in so many different areas. You can feel it in sort of the sort of polarizing dynamics that are happening in our world. You feel it in the culture wars. You feel it maybe in your own life as you think about what does it mean to follow Jesus in this age. And one of the things that, that you will feel if you've been paying attention just kind of over the past couple of decades is the role and kind of the place that Christianity has within culture is just changing. And I'm not making a value statement on that. It's just real, that the place that Christianity has within culture is changing. And so I want to ask this question uh, for you personally. What does it feel like to be a Christian in this cultural moment? What does it feel like? What are some of the emotions? As you think about in your neighborhood, in your workplace, among your extended family, as people learn that you're a Christian or hear that you're a follower of Jesus, uh, what does that feel like for you? Some of you in a moment like this might feel very kind of motivated and emboldened. Some of you might feel fearful or frustrated. Some might feel overwhelmed or sad. Some might feel embarrassed or misunderstood. What is it for you? As you think about being a Christian in this moment in Denver, what does it feel like? I know for me, I remember uh, about 11 years ago, I moved from Chicagoland uh, to Denver or to the Colorado area and came to plant a church. We planted a church in Fort Collins. And, uh, and I was fresh off the heels of nearly a decade in sort of like the Christian ac- academy. So 
college, seminary, grad school, and I was surrounded by Christians that were studying the Word of God, that were learning about Christian ministry, that were thinking about all these kinds of things. And that was sort of my main context relationally for almost a decade. It wasn't what I had grown up in, didn't grow up in a Christ-following family, didn't grow up at a Christian school. But for about a decade, my main relational context was people that were studying the Word of God, learning about the Bible, growing in different ways, hungry for Jesus to varying degrees. Uh, and that was my context. So when I came to Colorado and I got a job at a, at a college, a kind of career school in Westminster, uh, I entered onto this team and I was at a missions counselor on a team of 12 people. And I was the only Christian on the team. And I remember I had like all this like courage and I'm going to come, we're going to preach the gospel and God's going to do things here. And I'm going to talk to people about Jesus. And I like really quickly, like kind of experienced this sort of culture shock of sorts. Um, turns out that my coworkers weren't interested in Greek and Hebrew words. I was like, what? You're not interested in ancient Near Eastern history? You know, and uh, so like culturally, I'm just like learning like, hey, my, my way of thinking is so kind of like uh, ideologically kind of outside the kind of cultural narratives that are prevailing that it's like even to kind of speak in ways that were interesting to people or talk about Jesus in ways that were even intriguing felt interesting. But as much as I tried to build friendship and did have legitimate friendship with a lot of my coworkers, uh, little by little as they learned not only that I was a Christian, but I was trying to plant a church, which again, when you think about church planting, we talk about that kind of language. You're like, in their mind, that's like, what do you mean? Are you burying like a little church in the ground and praying that it will emerge? I mean, it's like, no, more like starting a new church. Uh, you know, they just like, you just felt the disconnect. And, and even though there was like a relational foundation, I felt so often misunderstood. I felt like people made assumptions about me. Uh, I felt at times kind of condescended or at least ridiculed, even by the people that I felt like, man, we're friends and we have this relationship. And I imagine you in your workplace can feel similar things. That uh, be a Christian in this cultural moment can be challenging to hang on to the claims of Jesus or to interact with people with different kind of ideas can be challenging. It can feel overwhelming at times. And that is something that's changing rapidly in our culture. It's changing rapidly. 20, 30 years ago, being a Christian was more culturally normal. And so you're feeling the sort of like rise of secularism, this kind of project to build a meaningful life apart from any kind of relevance of any deity whatsoever, much less Christianity or Jesus uh, is something that's continuing to move. And so uh, I, I think now over the past maybe couple decades, even being a, a pastor uh, in culture is different. Like there was a time where being a pastor was like a respected vocation and it's much less the case now. So when people like find out that you're a pastor, it's like assumptions being made. Uh, I, you know, I was sharing with some people last week that when I get on a plane, Maybe like 10, 15 years ago, I'd get on a plane and I was like, man, excited to talk about Jesus and praying for opportunities and, you know, maybe strike up a conversation, hear people's religious background and talk with them and maybe God will do something. And I still believe he can and I still believe courage about the gospel is right and good. But anymore, I hop on a plane and I'm like, okay, headphones in, like not super interested in a conversation because just for the past 10 years or so, that, those haven't worked out all that great for me. Uh, for me. And so the way it normally goes, and I'm pretty extroverted as a person, and so I'll hop on a plane and just kind of had he headphones in, audiobook or whatever, and listening. And then you see somebody, and you're like, man, I want to I be a warm, kind person. And so it's like, hey, you know, good to sit next to you. What's your name? You know, which it's not normal on a plane in the first place. You have the long conversation, and at the end, you're like, what's your name again? Anybody else? Kind of at the end of the conversation, you're like, I didn't even get your name, but we were just talking about our children and our stories and our history. So anyway, like, you get the name, and 
kind of start talking and inevitably, you know, the, the natural question is, what do you do for a living? And they're like, oh, I work in oil and gas. You're like, oh, cool. And as soon as I asked that question, I was like, that was a mistake. Because you know they're going to kind of toss the question back to you. And so then they say, well, what do you do for a living? And, uh, and it's always this like moment where I'm like, uh, I'm a teacher. Uh, like, oh, what do you teach? I'm like, uh, ancient history. Uh, uh, about things that matter. <laughs> uh, they're like, where do you teach? I'm like, it's at a church. And they're like, are you a pastor? I'm like, ah, fine, busted. I'm a pastor. <laughs> Confess, you caught me. And, uh, and immediately these days, like, uh, it's, the conversation ends really quickly. If you have no relational foundation where they can experience you as a human before they kind of experience you as a pastor and all the cultural assumptions that come with that, it can be this kind of non-starter for the conversation uh, but it's just fascinating. And again, I know that you've experienced similar things probably with neighbors and coworkers. It's hard. It's hard because the opinion about Christianity uh, in our culture is, is changing and assumptions are made. And so as we think about that sort of cultural shift and the movement that's happening, a question that I start asking is what does that mean about the future of the church? What does it mean about the future of the church? What does that mean about the future of your own faith when it feels increasingly like your faith is opposed or you're surrounded by cultural pressures that make being faithful to Jesus and holding fast to his word and trusting in him and living for his kingdom increasingly unpopular or irrelevant or even for some people feels like a threat to the sort of future they want to see in culture? What does it feel like? How do you process that? In Matthew 13, Jesus is preparing his disciples for what it means to be faithful to Christ and his kingdom in the midst of cultural opposition. It's what he's doing in these parables. He's actually preparing his disciples through parables to teach them about the nature of his kingdom in a way that would encourage them to stay faithful to Jesus, to stay hopeful for the nature of the kingdom, even when they're surrounded by cultural opposition. And so what I want us to do this morning, I want to kind of just back up and kind of Hop into the narrative of Matthew 13, where we are in the story to make sense of why Jesus is speaking in parables in the first place, and then why this particular parable about this farmer that's seemingly like not very good at planting seeds in helpful locations. And so why does he tell this story, and what does it mean? And my hope for us, and I mean this with all sincerity, is that we'd receive two things. One, incredible encouragement that God is doing more right now than you could even imagine. God is doing more right now for his kingdom than you could even imagine. And second, that we would receive a warning that in the, in the midst of times like this, there are threats to our own receptivity to the words of Jesus, and we would be paying attention to those threats. So both an encouragement and a warning. Uh, contextually, just kind of in the flow of the passage, um, Jesus has come on the scene and he's bringing the good news about God's kingdom. And so if you're not familiar with the, what the kingdom is, when we think about the kingdom of God, what we're talking about is the reign of God, that human beings are made to live under the good reign of God, our creator. That our creator made you, he designed you with wisdom and with beauty and with goodness. And what we learn from Genesis 1 and 2 is that when all of creation lives according to the design of their creator, it's really really good. When you trust in the words of your creator, you submit to the reign of the creator, you walk in the presence of the creator, there's a flourishing and abundance and a goodness that we are made for. And we flourish as humanity and the world will flourish. 
But what we learn from Genesis 3 at the beginning of the biblical story is that when we push against the reign of our creator, we say, I'm no longer going to trust your word. I'm no longer going to submit to your authority and live according to your design for humanity. But I'm going to find and forge my own way and I'm going to follow the deceptive ideas of evil forces and evil powers at work in our world. I'm going to listen to those lies, forge my own way. Then it leads to brokenness and chaos. And so the image in Genesis 1 through 3 is this image of a kingdom that is beautiful and good and flourishing that has now been wrecked and broken by humanity's rebellion. And so in Matthew, what Jesus is coming on the scene to do is to bring good news that God's not done with humanity and he's not done with the world. He's actually come to restore the reign of God to reconcile people to their creator, that they would enjoy his love, know his presence, walk in him, and that they would learn to trust in his reign, to listen to his word, and to live according to our design as humanity. So when we think about as a church, what does it mean to make disciples? What we're most talking about, what does it mean to be human as God designed, to be restored to our design as human beings, reconciled to God, walking with God, and following the ways of God that we learn through the teachings and the example of Jesus. And so what's happening Again, in this moment, as Jesus is coming, he's preaching the good news of the kingdom. He's actually showing the power of his kingdom to reconcile people to God, not through the things that they do or their morality or their knowledge or their theological convictions, but through his grace alone is inviting people, follow me, come to me, experience rest and healing and restoration and joy and forgiveness and hope. And as people come near to Jesus, they experience this inside-out transformation. And that's how the kingdom is moving throughout this gospel story, that people come to Jesus and are experiencing this inside-out transformation. And so Jesus kind of pulls together this close group of followers that had men and women but names 12 apostles. And in chapter 10, he sends them out to continue this mission, to start spreading this good news about the kingdom. And the expectation culturally was that momentum would start building. That the Jewish people had this expectation that when the Messiah comes to establish the kingdom, it's going to mean incredible situational change, circumstantial change. Most notably, the sort of Roman occupation of Israel would be driven out and the Romans would be driven out. Finally, the Israelite people would be liberated from Roman oppression. They'd be restored to their kind of like former glory. Their temple system would be reestablished and would flourish. And in time, all the nations would be like, the God of Israel is the one true God. That was their expectation. And so the thought was, when the Messiah comes, the people of Israel are going to be pumped. It's going to be like, oh my goodness, the Messiah, the one we've been waiting for, the promised one, is finally here. And all of Israel would see it, and it would be self-evident, and it would be clear, and momentum would build. And there would be this kind of like cultural shift that would finally kind of push out the Romans, and they'd take political power, and they'd take military power, and kind of restore Israel to its former glory. That was the imagined kind of expectation. And so when they are on the scene, these followers start following Jesus and they're like, we get to be a part of the sort of like the beginning of this movement that's going to erupt and it's going to be exciting. There's going to be all this change and all of our hopes and dreams are going to finally be realized. And then they start going and sharing this news and they're hated and they're rejected and their own family thinks they're nuts and their own synagogue leaders think they're being deceived and turned away. And the sort of employer in their business thinks they're crazy and they share this good news with their sibling and they're like, this is going to be great news. And their sibling's like, yeah, whatever. Like, just come and help me do the thing we were doing before. So there's this sort of experience, people that are disinterested, people that are apathetic, people that are opposed, people that are afraid of what's happening. And so all of a sudden these followers find themselves in a moment where they're not experiencing what they expected. They expected it to be exciting They expected it to be a momentum-building movement. 
And instead, they're surrounded by opposition. And again, maybe you feel that right now. Opposition from extended family, family members, opposition from coworkers and employers, opposition from cultural leaders in different ways. And they find themselves maybe feeling a little more beleaguered, a little more beat down, a little more discouraged in the cultural moment that they were in. And so Jesus, in chapter 13, is going to begin to kind of help them understand how his kingdom is moving, even in the midst of that sort of cultural opposition. And to teach them, he's going to speak to them through a medium called parables. And so I want you to see what happens in the scene. There's all this cultural opposition. Get into the emotional state of the disciples. They had this expectation of this movement building thing, and they're seeing thousands of people gather around for the Sermon on the Mount. They're seeing healings happen. They're seeing incredible miracles, the calming of storms, the casting out of demons, and they are convinced he's the Messiah. But what they're experiencing is division and different responses, including widespread rejection of Jesus. So imagine them kind of confused, a little bit perplexed, and very discouraged. And so in Matthew 13, verse 1, here's what it says, starting right there at the beginning of the passage. And when Jesus had finished, oh, sorry, uh, 13, verse 1, I'm one page off. That same day, Jesus went out of the house, the house where he is speaking about what the true family of God is like, and he sat beside the sea. And great crowds gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat down and the whole crowd stood on the beach. So I want you to imagine the scene. Jesus has been teaching. The disciples have been learning. There's these divided responses. And Jesus comes and he's next to the Sea of Galilee and this huge crowd gathers, like a big crowd. And they're like ready to hear Jesus. And you can imagine the disciples beginning to get excited. Like, okay, maybe this is the moment. He's going to teach them, and now everybody's going to be like, oh, now it makes sense. Oh, now we get it. Oh, now we're going to follow you. Yes, we now believe you're the Messiah. They're kind of hoping that this is sort of the turning point moment where now all of Israel is going to believe and we're going to kind of get back on track, get this kingdom movement moving in the right direction. And so he kind of gets on a boat, and the idea is kind of creating this natural amphitheater where he backs up kind of off the coast, and all the people, this huge crowd of people gathered. And you can imagine the disciples like, it's go time. Here we go. And so Jesus then goes on to teach, and here's what he says. He says, a sower went out to sow, and he sowed. As he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on the rocky ground where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched, and since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. And he's done. And I can imagine the disciples like, You missed your moment. You know, like uh, this, could have been, this could have been a big moment. Like you could have kind of went back to your greatest hits. Remember, blessed are the poor. Like people love that, you know, that one. Or like you are the light of the world. Like that really resonated, you know. Or like don't be anxious. God cares about you. Like there are things that you've taught that really resonated with people. And now you're speaking this sort of like cryptic, weird parable. And you can imagine they're, they're disappointed, because they thought maybe this was a moment where the kingdom movement's going to roll and finally things are going to pick up speed. And, and now it's this cryptic story that leaves a huge majority of the people scratching their heads, a little bit bewildered, perplexed, disinterested. Maybe people start kind of like moving away. This isn't what we expected. Have you ever had that moment where you've like talked up a TV show to somebody 
and you're like, oh, this is the best show. You should watch it. Like, let's sit together and watch this episode sometime. And you finally sit down, and you're like, this is, oh, this is really funny. It's one of my favorite shows. And then, like, it's the worst episode you've ever seen. It's, like, horrible. It's, like, semi-inappropriate. Some scene, you're like, it's not normally like that. You know, that's not, that's not normally how it goes. And it's just so disappointing because you've talked this thing up, and it kind of falls flat. Uh, you felt that? Uh, it's kind of like that kind of a moment. They're so excited. This is the Messiah. Everybody's going to know. Everybody's going to believe. And then he speaks in this cryptic story. And it's like, oh, it's not normally that cryptic. And, uh, and Jesus seems like not really interested in trying to get everybody to understand. Why? Why? They want to know. So they have this question. They go up to Jesus and they ask him the question. Verse 10. Then the disciples came to, the, came to him and said, why do you speak to them in parables? Like, why in this moment, with so many people listening and so much confusion about who you are, why would you just not make it plain? Why would you not make it clear? Why wouldn't you just, like, do a big miracle and be like, I'm the Messiah? You know, like, why, why wouldn't you do that? Don't you want everyone to believe this? Don't you want it? The answer that Jesus is going to give is not what we want to hear. In our culture, what we want to hear is, of course, Jesus is going to speak and make it super clear so that everybody would understand. And that's not what Jesus says. So what is a parable? When we think about parables in our culture, we think about a short fictional story that helps communicate some sort of moral truth. So you think about like the boy who cried wolf, right? Which the moral truth that we teach our children is if you lie, you will get eaten by a wolf. That's like, uh, that's what I teach my kids all the time. If you lie, a wolf will eat you. Um, no, we teach these like little stories to communicate a moral truth. And that's not exactly what Jesus is doing. And so here's a definition of what a parable, the way you understand the parables of Jesus. It's a short fictional story that Jesus use, uses to both conceal and reveal the nature of his kingdom. A short fictional story that Jesus uses to both conceal and reveal the nature of his kingdom. And I want you to see how he communicates it here in the passage. Look at verse 11. So the disciples have asked him, why are you speaking in parables? And he answered them, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom, but to them it has not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given, and we will have an abundance. He will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see. In hearing, they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled. And I'll come back to the prophecy. Here's what Jesus is saying. Some people, when they're hearing the teachings of Jesus, it's lighting up their heart and it's making sense of the whole world. It's making sense of the beauty in the world, the brokenness in the world. It's making sense of their own pain and their own guilt and their shame and their regrets. It's making sense of their hopes and their dreams, the longings for justice and beauty and rest and love and grace and the brokenness that they felt around them and the brokenness they feel within, within them. Like something about Jesus is coming and, and some people hear this and their hearts are open and intrigued and attracted to what Jesus is saying and what he's doing. And to others, they're seeing the same miracles they're hearing the same stories. They're kind of watching the same experiences. And some are like, nah. And others are adamantly opposed to the point where when some people will see Jesus heal a man with a withered hand on a day of Sabbath, instead of saying, what a miracle, this must be the Messiah, they pull together a little council and say, we got to get rid of this guy. 
Like there's a hardness of heart that exists and a rejection and a kind of like deafness. Though there are ears, they're not hearing. Though there are eyes, they're not truly seeing. Though they have hearts that are kind of purporting to want to understand, they are hardened at a heart level to the teachings of Jesus, the way of Jesus, the person of Jesus, and the kingdom of Jesus. And Jesus is saying, this is what I expected. I'm speaking in parables so that some people will continue to not understand. And what he's going to say through the passage in Isaiah is that it is even the kind of cryptic nature is a judgment upon those who have already hardened their hearts against his kingdom and his reign. If, if they've hardened their hearts, that even the kind of presence of Jesus, there's a judgment saying, you are too far gone, your heart is too hard. And so there's a judgment. But there's also a sense where Jesus is buying time. And I don't mean buying time uh, kind of in an unhealthy, manipulative way. He's actually knowing that the kind of opposition around him is mounting, that the clearer he becomes, the more opposed certain people groups, both Rome. If you find, hey, there's this new king that's coming to create a subversive empire that's going to take over the world and undermine the empire from the sort of like ground level, right? Roman authorities aren't going to be pumped about that. When they kind of get more and more clear about who Jesus is and what he's doing, they certainly are not pumped. And the Jewish leaders who actually are hearing this that don't want kind of have their own system of power and oppression to be kind of upset or their own value system, which comes through sort of religious achievements and kind of following these kind of legal requirements of the law. They don't want that to get upset. They're seeing Jesus as a threat as well. And so Jesus speaks in parables in some ways to keep that message cryptic from those who have already rejected it out of the gate, who aren't even interested. And so that those who are interested will pay attention, and this is going to help them make sense of the nature of his kingdom. Those who are rejecting him aren't going to receive it, and the cryptic nature allows him to continue to speak in ways that are sort of sneaking in the side door, like a Trojan horse that comes in the nature of this community and subverts it from the inside out. And so that's what he's doing. And so he quotes this passage in Isaiah. And to make sense of the passage in Isaiah, I want to kind of just take us on a little journey. This is kind of stuff I care a lot about, not everybody cares about, but I'm just like, Bear with me for a second. We're going to go on a little biblical theological tour through the Bible, paying attention to this Hebrew word, zerah. Um, The Hebrew word zerah means seed or offspring. And it's going to make sense of some of what's happening in this parable, but it's also going to make sense of what's happening in Isaiah. The Hebrew word zerah can mean seed, like a seed that's planted, but it can also mean offspring, like descendants. And so if you go all the way back to the beginning of this story, when God has this flourishing kingdom and humanity turns away from the reign of God through the temptation of this serpent, who's going to be this sort of like example of this Satan, this adversary that's warring against humanity and pulling people away from God's presence. There's a prophecy in Genesis 3.15, a teaching from God that there will be a future. God is not done with humanity, that an offspring, a Zerah of this woman, will crush the head of a Zerah of this serpent. And the serpent will strike the heel of the Zerah of the woman. So you have an offspring, a seed of the woman, and a seed of the serpent. This cosmic conflict where when they clash, the serpent will strike the heel of the offspring of the woman. And the offspring of the woman will crush the serpent's head. And the image is we call it the Proto-Evangelium, which is just the first gospel. The first story about some future where all things are going to be made right again. So all your longings, all of humanity's longings for justice and love and grace and healing and restoration and reconciliation. All that we long for is a longing for the world made right. And the prophecy is that that's going to happen through an offspring of this woman. And almost the whole biblical story, among other things, is tracking This kind of, we're waiting for that Zerah. We're waiting for that offspring. We're waiting for that chosen, set-apart, holy seed to come and to make things right again. 
And so you can track all through Genesis those boring genealogies that drive you nuts and you skip over them in your Bible reading plan. I do too, it's okay. You know, like uh, you kind of skip over that and it's like, well, this person had this child, this person had this child. It's like, why is that in there? It's because we're tracking the seed. We're waiting for the offspring to come. And so finally you get to sort of Abraham and the promises, this chosen offspring's gonna come through Abraham. And then you get Isaac and not Ishmael and you get Jacob and not Esau. And then you get these 12 tribes and we, and we find it's going to be a lion from the tribe of Judah. The offspring's going to come through the tribe of Judah. And you get to David, this king par excellence that's been like, this is the kingdom and this is the way it's supposed to be. And it's going to be an offspring of David. And so you're waiting, you're waiting, you're waiting. And through this story, God has called together a people and brought them into this sort of like garden paradise, like a a kind of retelling of the Garden of Eden. It's this, this nation of Israel where there's flourishing and abundance. It's this land flowing with milk and honey. And in time, the people of Israel do just what Adam and Eve did. They start turning away from God. They start compromising with pagan deities and worshiping the things of the cultures around them. They stop being faithful. They start kind of allowing injustice to work into their own community. And God would send these prophets over and over saying, if you don't turn back to God, if you don't repent, Judgment is coming. Your rebellion will lead to destruction and pain. And prophet after prophet, generation after generation came speaking to the people. That judge, if you don't turn, judgment is coming. Judgment is coming. And there's this long history of the prophets. And finally you get to the prophet Isaiah. And the prophet Isaiah comes on the scene after this generational rebellion and, and rejection, not just of God's kingdom, but of God's prophets that have been come pleading, return to God, return to God. And Isaiah comes on the scene and basically says, we are in the end game. It's done. Your hardness of heart has been so substantial and so generational and so hard that judgment is coming. And it's going to come through this nation called Babylon. And Babylon's going to come and, and Israel is going to be decimated. They're going to be absolutely crushed. You're going to be exiled, just like Adam and Eve were exiled from the Garden of Eden, away from the presence of God, from their rebellion. So the nation of Israel will be exiled from the promised land, away from the temple, away from the presence of God because of their rebellion. And in the midst of those prophetic judgments and saying, here's what's coming, there would always be these glimpses of hope that God will not give up on his promises. And that's what Isaiah 6 is. It's this prophecy that you have hardened your heart and Isaiah's here saying, I'm going to keep on speaking, but you're not going to hear. I'm going to keep warning you, but you're not going to turn. Your hearts are so thoroughly hardened. Judgment is coming, but God's not done. God's not done. Look at what he says. This is Isaiah chapter 6. Here's the prophecy. Isaiah chapter 6, and it picks up in verse 7. Thus says the Lord God, it shall not stand, and it shall come to pass. Sorry, uh, verse 6, verse 9. And he said, go to this people and say, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their heart and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. And then I, this is Isaiah, said, how long, O Lord? And he said, until cities lie waste without inhabitant and houses without people. And the land is a desolate waste. And the Lord removes people far away. And the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again. And like a terebinth or an oak, whose stump remains when it is felled. And then he says, the holy seed is its stump. And so here's the prophecy. The people have hardened their hearts. And so Isaiah is going to be yet another prophet. And he's going to say again, there's a God who made you. There's a king who created you. Return to him and experience life. 
experience flourishing, experience abundance, experience the way that humans were made to live and the way the world was made to be. And the people are going to harden their hearts against it yet again. And in their hardness of heart, it will lead to destruction and desolation and pain. As people walk away from the God of love and life and light, the God who is the life giver, it will lead to death and pain and destruction. It's what will happen. And as a judgment upon that, as we keep speaking, people will keep hardening their heart. And the image that Isaiah gives all throughout the story is that Israel is supposed to be this like beautiful garden with trees and flourishing and fruitfulness and abundance and vines and vineyards. And it was going to be this beautiful flourishing experience and said, now it's going to get burned to the ground. It's going to get laid waste. And Israel itself will be like a desolate wasteland where the trees have been cut down to the ground. And if Israel was compared to this big tree that was supposed to flourish and bring fruits and bring shade and peace and restoration to the nations, it's getting cut all the way down to the stump. And at the very end, it says the holy seed, the holy Zerah is the stump. That out of this pain, out of this desolation, out of this seemingly hopeless moment, the seed is coming. And the seed is going to give life to the world. The seed is going to bear fruit and it's going to be in a way that will show God's grace and power and love. And so when Jesus quotes Isaiah 6, he's saying we are in that moment, that we are still in this long line of rejection and rebellion. But I am the seed who has come to bring life and restoration and healing and hope. And the way that this kingdom is going to grow is not by everybody be like, oh, oh my gosh, yes, it's going to happen actually in a sort of subversive way. And so that that kind of promise makes its way all the way through Isaiah, where you get to Isaiah 7:14, and this idea of, behold, a virgin will conceive and bear a son, and we should call him Emmanuel. God will be with us. Or Isaiah 9, where it talks about this kind of son, this child that would be born to us, a son that would be given to us, and the government, a new kind of government, a new kind of kingdom would be upon his shoulders that lead to justice and hope and righteousness and joy that would spread forever and ever. Of the increase of his kingdom, there will be no end. Of the increase of the joy he brings, it will never stop. It will keep moving. And as Isaiah moves on, you're kind of expecting this military leader, but Isaiah presents him, uh, presents him as this humble servant king who doesn't come with military dominance. He has no form or majesty that people would admire him and respect him. He has no beauty that people would be like, yes, that's the Messiah. But he comes as a man of sorrows, one who's acquainted with grief, a kind of person that people want to turn away from because he's too lowly. He's too humble. He's too unimpressive on the kind of presentation of himself. And yet he would be pierced for our transgressions. He'd be crushed for our iniquities. Upon him would be a chastisement that would bring us peace with God. And through his wounds, humanity, we would experience healing. And in that story moves on, by the time you get to Isaiah 55, it's like this seed is coming to give life to the world. And this desolate wasteland is now being planted. And we're giving seeds to the sower and bread to the hungry. And the word of the Lord is coming. And it's not returning void, but it's accomplishing the purposes that God sends it out for. And the end is this, these briars, from the briars, the cypress tree is just going to explode and bloom. And from these thorns, these myrtle flowers are going to be bringing flourishing. And into these dry and desolate and cracked and weary places, abundance in life is going to come. But it's not coming through a culture war. It's not coming through military domination. It's not coming even from circumstantial liberation. It's coming through a humble servant king who loves his people and lays down his life for them. And it's coming as that humble servant king works in one life at a time and brings transformation from the inside out. That seed plants and it bears fruit. And surely people will continue in this history of rebellion and rejection. And the word will come and many people will turn away from it. But the word will land in certain hearts and in certain lives and it will begin to bear fruit. Varying degrees of fruit and varying types of people, but it'll bear fruit. And that 
kingdom will continue to grow and increase in a way that is so powerful and so stunning, but it won't be a way that sort of like draws the attention of the world. It won't be the way the world thinks about power. It won't be the way the world thinks about government. It won't be the way the world thinks about culture. It won't be the way the world thinks about any of those things. It's going to come through humble, sacrificial, servant-hearted love. The love of a God who sent his son into the world to lay down his life for his people. So when Jesus speaks this prophecy in Isaiah, he's saying, you are understanding that I'm the one to come to restore the world. Not everybody is understanding that, but the prophets were waiting for this moment. Isaiah was waiting for this moment. Jeremiah was waiting for this moment. Ezekiel was waiting for this moment. The men and women throughout history that were faithful to me were waiting for this moment. It's been given to you, and you're seeing it, and it's experiencing this transformation. And so what he's saying to his people is don't be discouraged when it seems like everybody around you is turning away from Jesus, when it seems like everybody around you thinks you're crazy, when your family thinks you're insane, and, and when your coworkers think you're you know, a threat to their society, and when your boss thinks you're an idiot that's uneducated and stupid, and when your family member or your sibling or your spouse thinks you've been deceived and duped, do not lose heart. The kingdom is moving. He's building his church, he's growing his kingdom, and it's spreading through personal transformation one life at a time. And that how, that's how it has always happened, always. In the most dark moments in human history, the times where it felt like the people of God were this sort of beleaguered minority, ideological minority in the midst of a world that was opposed, God was working. He's working so much so that for 2,000 years, that kingdom, that seed has been planted. The news of Jesus has been planted from person to person, and surely many people, as, as it goes from these 12 out to the nations, many friends and family and cultural leaders rejected them. But some believed. Some moments, 3,000 believed. And then a few years later, maybe 6,000. And then through persecution and pain and opposition, all those people scatter around North Africa and the Near East and kind of Eastern Europe, and that seed kept being planted. And more people in cities would believe and they'd be opposed and they would be treated like they were crazy and they were treated like they were a threat to the Roman government and yet they stayed faithful and the seed would continue to be planted and it would move from city to city and nation to nation and people group to people group and generation to generation and 2,000 years later, here we are kind of celebrating a king and participating in a kingdom that is represented in every tribe, every language, every people group around the world. Nobody worships Caesar anymore. Nobody worships the pagan gods of Norse mythology anymore. And nobody does these things, and yet the kingdom of God has continued to move. And so in a moment like this, what does it feel like to be a Christian? I want to say, do not be discouraged. God is on the move. Take a deep breath. We might be in a moment where there's increasing opposition. Our job is not to fight a culture war. It's not our job. Our job is to be faithful to the humble servant king who laid down his life and love for his people to trust his word, to trust his power, and to trust that his power is made perfect even in our weakness, especially in our weakness. When we feel more and more pushed to the margins in society and more and more like our ideas about what makes a flourishing society feel less and less accepted by the people around us, don't be discouraged. Jesus is on the move and he always has been. So take a deep breath. Look at the servant king who brought his kingdom not through cultural dominance or cultural war, but through humble, servant-hearted sacrifice and love. And that is an incredible encouragement. And that's the main thing that Jesus is giving his disciples. Don't be discouraged. God is on the move. His kingdom is moving. And it's bearing fruit. And it will continue to bear fruit one person at a time. The other thing Jesus is giving in a moment like this is, is a real warning for us. 
that there are threats to our own receptivity to the kingdom message. And he says it here as he explains the parable. And I want to read again just this explanation in Matthew 13. I want you to hear this. And there's three major threats to our receptivity of the kingdom. Look at this, Matthew 13. As Jesus now explains the parable, this is the inner group of disciples. He's not explaining this to the whole crowds, but as the disciples come and say, help us understand, he explains it. He says, when anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. And as for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution, tribulation is just trouble, pain, difficulty from the outside. Persecution is intentionally inflicted tribulation. So pain, suffering that's inflicted upon you because of your faith in Jesus. When either tribulation or trouble or pain or persecution arise on account of the word, immediately he falls away. As for what was sown among the thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares or the word there is preoccupation, the obsessions of the things of this world and the deceitfulness, the allure, the attractiveness of riches. And the word riches is just worldly possessions, worldly goods, not just money, but just the things of the world, this obsession and attractiveness of acquiring and accumulating more. They choke out the word and it proves unfruitful. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. Indeed, he bears fruit and yields in one case 100 and another 60 and another 30. And so here's the way I would summarize the three threats to us. One is that there is a threat to be captured by deceitful ideas. That what Satan does in this world, spiritual forces, and we believe in spiritual forces at work, are sowing into this world ideas about reality and what makes the good life that are so contradictory to God's design for humanity, but they seem at times right to us. And so culture is full of narratives about what is true joy, what is true meaning, what is true hope, what is true life, what is true love, what is true rest, what is true justice, what is true all these things, what is vocation all about, what is family all about, what is like what's happening in the world right now. And there are all these ideas and Satan is actively sowing into those arenas, lies to keep you away from God's reign and God's kingdom. And so there's a temptation to be captured by deceitful ideas. Maybe you feel it through the voice of a friend who thinks you're crazy and they think Jesus is the problem in this world and all of the religious people are extreme and, and they're a huge threat. And I, I'll be honest, there are things that are done within Christianity today and throughout history that are egregious. And we need to be people that are humble and receptive about our participation in those things and learn. And we need to turn away from the areas where we kind of experience that. There are always ways for us to grow and to receive. But the idea that that makes Jesus somehow irrelevant or the issue is a deceitful idea that leads many people to a time of deconstruction. Or there's just deceitful ideas about where your good life comes from, that you want to find life in the things of this world apart from the presence of God, and it won't work. A second threat to your soul is the pressure to collapse under pain. To collapse under pain. There is suffering that is real. In Job, it talks about humanity is born to trouble. Just like sparks fly out from a fire, trouble comes upon us as humans from the beginning. There's pain. And that pain can be something that pushes you away from the presence of God and his people, or it can be an opportunity to draw near to the presence of God and his people. A God who looks at you in pain with sympathy and love. Jesus, who actually entered into the pain to be somebody who could identify with us, but also who, through his death and resurrection, has given us hope that even pain can be redeemed, even death can be restored and renewed to give us hope in the midst of it. And so will the pain push you away from God's presence? 
and away from God's people or the pain draw you near to God's presence and God's people. That's a threat to your soul, that you collapse under the pain of this world. And the third threat is that you'd be allured by the things of this world, preoccupied just with the busyness and the habits and the idolatries and the obsession with more and better and more and better and more and better, more and better possessions, more and better houses, more and better job, more and better experiences, more and better relationships. And we always want more and we always want better, more and better church. You know, whatever it is, right? We just want more, we want better, we want more, we want better. And that that obsession, that preoccupation with more and better chokes out the things that God wants to do within us. So the question I would kind of offer to you is, where do you feel most under siege? Where do you feel kind of most attacked? Are you maybe in a person who's like feeling like you're on the rocky ground and there are ideas that are coming that are making you really question a lot about Jesus? Questions are okay. Aspects of deconstruction are okay. There are things that we need to deconstruct. There are times where we should ask good questions. There are times that we need to kind of process. But to do that in community with other people that have done that before and with you, to love and help speak truth in the face of a culture full of lies, it's important. And maybe it's pain. What is that pain doing to you right now? Are you drifting away or are you drawing in? And what about the things of this world? Are you so preoccupied with the things of the world that the presence of Jesus, communion with Jesus, the people of God, the mission of God, there's like no more margin for it. It's like you've been suffocated out of the kingdom because you're so overwhelmed with the things that you could kind of accomplish in the world. These are real. I feel these things at play in me at different times in different ways all the time. Where is it for you? And here there's a warning. It's a warning to pay attention. And in those places to return again to Jesus and say, I want to live for you and for your kingdom. And when you turn to him and you slow down to pay attention to his teaching, his love, his presence, the word of God takes root in your soul and brings transformation from the inside out and leads to a fruitfulness. We start showing the evidence of the spirit, things like love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. And as you live and you're bold with who Jesus is and what he's meant for you and what he's done in you, and that seed is planted from you into the lives of others, you see transformation and change. And this is how Jesus is building his church. It's actually not rocket science. It's not something that depends on our effort or ingenuity or how dynamic we are as a people. It's dependent on the faithfulness of Jesus and he has always been faithful and he always will be. Let's pray. Jesus, we come right now as a people in need of you. We need your grace. Uh, We need strength. We need eyes to see where there are lies that are making their way into the way we think about reality, where there are pressures that are pushing us away from you, where there are things that are just attractive to us in the world that are enticing us and deceiving us. Would you pour out grace on us to be, even in this moment, attentive to the things your Holy Spirit wants to teach us? Would you give us ears to hear? Jesus, I pray that over this community right now, that you would give us ears to hear. And so, friends, I want to give you a moment in a second just to ask that question. Do you have ears to hear? Are there things in your life that are drawing you away Are there things in your life that are deceiving you? Are there pressures? Are there things that are alluring you away from Jesus? And what would it look like right now to open up your heart to Jesus and just be honest about those with him and ask him for the strength to persevere in faith? And so Jesus, would you work among us even now in these moments as we open up our hearts to your Holy Spirit? In Christ's name, amen. 
Thanks for listening. Park Church exists to make disciples of Jesus for the glory of God and for the joy of all people. If you enjoyed this, make sure you share it with someone. We'd also love to hear from you on social media. Find us with at Park Church Denver. Lastly, more resources and info are available online at parkchurch.org. Peace and love.